0: If you'd like to better understand which financial KPIs make the most sense for your organization, join us in the KPIs Every Financial Controller and FPNA Should Master event. In this 60 minute webinar, Paul Barnhurst, the founder of the FPNA Guy, will dive into the key metrics every financial controller and FPNA professional should master, focusing on the formulas behind the numbers and the reason behind implementing their tracking in the first place. The webinar will take place on October 19th, starting from 12 p.m. EST. No matter what type of company or organization you work for, you won't want to miss this event. So find the link in the episode resources or head over to bbowl.com forward slash webinar hyphen subscription to register. Welcome back to CFO Weekly, where we're talking with financial leaders about how to build efficiency in their teams, create time for strategy, and ultimately get results with your host, Megan Weiss. Let's jump right in. Today, my guest is Chad Gold, Chief Financial Officer, Sales Loft. Since 2018, Chad has served as Chief Financial Officer for Sales Loft and has overseen a period of significant growth with annual recurring revenue growing by more than 450%. In addition to managing the company's financial performance, Chad is responsible for investor relations, legal, strategic business development, real estate, and facilities. Before joining SalesLoft, Chad served as Chief Financial Officer for Rubicon Global. Prior to that, he served as Global Vice President and Chief Financial Officer at SAP Ariba, where he led a global team that provided the scalability and infrastructure to more than double cloud subscription revenue. He also held multiple finance leadership roles at the Home Depot in financial planning and analysis, international, and M&A. He began his career working as a senior consultant in business valuation in the Atlanta office of Ernst & Young. Chad has a bachelor's in finance from the University of Florida and an MBA from Emory University. Chad, thank you very much for joining me on this episode of CFO Weekly.
1: Well, Megan, thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here.
0: Yeah, today we'll be learning about your career journey and sales loft and getting advice on how to manage fast-growing companies and prepare them for next steps. And looking forward to this and, and learning from you. So let's get going.
1: That sounds great.
0: First, as always, let's start with you and your career journey and how it is that you got to where you are today.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, I did my undergrad at the University of Florida, actually in finance. That doesn't mean I knew I was going to be a CFO from the beginning, but Came out of college, and my first job was doing corporate finance at uh, Ernst & Young, EY today. And you know what was great about that was learn how to build models, got a really strong foundation in thinking about how to look at financials, but you don't get to go very deep into companies. And so I realized I wanted to get more operational. And so after about two years at EY, I left and went to the Home Depot and spent the next eight years of my career in a myriad of different finance roles at Home Depot. I did a little bit of internal audit. I did mergers and acquisitions. I did financial planning and analysis. I was in an operational finance role um, and really taught me how to, how to translate financials into operating metrics that the business can understand. And you know, after eight years, had a great run, got to work with incredible leaders like Carol Tomei and Ted Decker, who's now the CEO of Home Depot. And, you know, just realized that retail wasn't a passion for me. You know, retail can be very repetitive, very seasonal, and and finance is already like that already and and was fortunate enough to have an old colleague from EY that recruited me over to Ariba and got me into the software space. And so for the last nine years, I have worked in cloud technology, spent about four and a half years at Ariba, which is a division of SAP, uh, as the division CFO there. And then left there in 2017 uh, for my first standalone CFO job as the CFO of a company called Rubicon Global at the time. It's now called Rubicon Technologies, which is a waste and recycling startup that at the time was headquartered in Atlanta. And what was great about that role was first venture-backed CFO job, was able to raise a significant amount of capital, really learn how to work with investors, and just really round out my my skill set. And all of that really led me to then ultimately in 2018, uh, joining SalesLoft. And so literally, I think, Megan, a week from tomorrow is my four-year anniversary at SalesLoft. Wow. And I mean, it's been the greatest joy of my career, not just to be able to do it at an incredible company like SalesLoft, but to, to be able to grow the company in the Atlanta business and technology community. Since I've been here... We've grown revenues about 500%. We've seen employee headcount up about 300%. And all of that has translated to about a 10x growth. So when I got here, SalesLoft was valued a little bit north of $200 million. And last year, we did a majority recap transaction with Vista where the deal was valued at $2.3 billion. So we raised our enterprise value by about 10x.
0: And you've been there since 2018. When was the company started?
1: The company was originally started in 2011 by Kyle Porter, okay. who's still our CEO And today. There was a, pro- a kind of a version one of the product that came out. And then really in, in that 2014-2015 timeline was when really the product that now is the the foundation of SalesLoft today, our, our platform was built. But yeah, the company's been around for over 10 years.
0: And let's talk about SalesLoft. What, what is it that you guys do?
1: Yeah, so most people are familiar with the modern CRM. So think of Salesforce... Microsoft Dynamics, HubSpot. Really, the CRM is just a database that people load data for people like me to look at. What SalesLoft is, is an engagement platform. It's a layer that sits on top of the CRM. And sellers can use our platform to really do all of their digital selling tasks. So think, you know, we can be their their multi-channel communication system for their customers, their email, their phone. We can connect to their calendar. They can also use our system to interact with customers to transcribe and record calls. Um, And they can also use our system to forecast. And so if you think as a seller, whereas you didn't used to want to go in the CRM for your day-to-day job, you can do all of your tasks in sales law. And then we make you so much more efficient because we're designed for you to to interact with customers and sell, sell whatever it is you need to sell. And then we feed all of that data back to the CRM so that you know, the company can still have visibility to what's going on, but it makes the sellers more effective and it actually makes the fidelity of the data and the CRM better as well.
0: And do you guys have like a, a perfect client? Are there clients that are better than others for you guys? Or who's your target audience?
1: You know, I hate to give you the, the cop-out answer that any, basically anybody that sells uh-huh. anything could, and interacts with customers could be a target client. But really, if you look at our customer base, you know, in the early days, it was very heavy technology companies. So some of our biggest customers are our companies like IBM, like Google, but, you know, LinkedIn is a big customer of ours. But over the years, you know, we've seen digital selling and, and modern sales methods really roll out to companies in any industry. So 3M is a big customer of ours, Cargill, Comcast, Verizon. I mean, you know, you think about business services, telecommunications, supply chain, healthcare, really any of those companies can find a use case for our technology. And especially as they digitize how they sell, they quickly realize that if you don't have sales engagement technology like SalesLoft, you're really at a disadvantage because your sellers will be less productive.
0: So I've heard over the last two years that digitization has been sped up by by let's say a decade or more. How have the last two years been been for you guys?
1: Yeah, look, I think... You know, COVID has definitely accelerated a trend. And I think the two years happens to align with was really when everybody started working remotely. Mm -hmm. But what we saw was it was no longer, it used to be a conversation about inside sales versus field sales. And that, you know, at the time people viewed technology like ours around inside sales, but then it quickly became, you're either a digital seller or you're not, and people are working from everywhere. And so we've certainly seen that, Accelerate the trend for us over the last two years, and our growth rate accelerated through COVID. Didn't and it didn't decelerate. And and so what we saw was companies that didn't have sales engagement quickly realized that you know they needed technology like this. And we saw buying cycles actually accelerate because they realized that if they didn't do this, they wouldn't be making the right investments in their sales stack. And so it's been a positive, you know, the the trend of. Remote work, hybrid work, and then investments in digital technology have all been positive trends for our business, for sure.
0: And do you guys have competitors? And if so, what what differentiates you from them?
1: So it's interesting. I, I, you know, I'd say the biggest difference between Sales Loft and our competition is you know, we're the only one that's a true platform. So as I talked about digital selling, I think we, we bring together a, a, a modern workflow. Oftentimes, we use the word cadence along with a conversation intelligence platform so that you can record and transcribe calls. And then a deals and forecasting solution all in one platform. So I, I highlight that to say we have competitors that that compete in point components. So our, our I'd say our closest workflow competitor is a company called Outreach out of Seattle. For our conversations product, there's a company called Gong. And then for our for our deals product, there's there's a few competitors there. A company called Clary might come to mind. But there's nobody that competes with us head-to-head across the entire platform.
0: And since joining SalesLoft in 2018, you mentioned that you guys have seen significant growth. I see that recurring revenue has grown by more than 450%. So what do you attribute this growth to?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a combination of number one, you know, software companies are ultimately going to grow if there's product market fit. And so there's obviously an incredible need for what we're providing in the market. And then I think, look, we've been very fortunate to bring on incredible leaders who've helped us not just to grow and take advantage of that product market fit, but really we've we've grown into new segments. So as an example, four years ago when I got here, sales lost mix of business. If you think about size of companies was probably eighty percent on the SMB side or the the smaller side, um, and twenty percent in the enterprise. Think larger companies like I referenced before. And you know, over the last four years, that twenty percent has, has gone north of forty percent. So our enterprise business has been growing at a at a significant rate, which has helped our growth. And then we've also invested in growing internationally. So about three years ago, we opened a London office and launched SalesLoft UK. And now the uh, the EMEA the, the Europe region makes up you know roughly fifteen percent of our revenue today. And then this year we launched in Asia Pacific, and I expect that by the end of this year, international revenue will probably be roughly twenty percent of our business, which was essentially nothing four years ago.
0: And I'm just curious how, how have you guys targeted those enterprises? I assume that the growth from twenty to forty percent of your sales was due to some sort of effort. So how did you guys make that switch?
1: Yeah, I think it's a few things. I mean, you know, one is, you know, there are different sellers that sell into bigger enterprises than, you know, potentially into an SMB solution. So I think it was bringing on the talent that we needed to be able to sell into into those larger customers. Also, just our maturity of our platform you know, we've made significant investments in the platform in terms of security and controls, things that modern enterprises are going to insist on having. So think talent our technology. And then I think some of it's just that, you know, if you look at most technology adoption, you know, look, it generally starts in smaller companies. And so, you know, the reality is that over the last four years, we've just seen that enterprises are now realizing that this is something they have to have. And so kind of all of those factors combined along with the intentional cross-functional investments you'd expect in terms of not just sales, but marketing. We talked about product. And then also, you know, the post-sales component for our company, the ability to not just sell software to large enterprises, but to be able to implement them and then make them successful so that they adopt. I mean, we've really invested in all of those areas to drive that growth.
0: And is it pretty much off the shelf or does it require a lot of customization?
1: No, I mean, it's, it's pretty much off the shelf. I mean, there's certain, you know, there's certain customizations that we can do as part of the implementation, but, you know, we are not, we are certainly not creating features for individual customers. I mean, it, it is one of those things where with some adjustments to your selling process along with our technology, you, know, you can get maximum ROI pretty easily off the shelf.
0: And let's switch gears and talk about managing fast-growing companies. So what is the key to successfully doing this?
1: Yeah, you know, one of the things I learned pretty early in my career is, you know, finance is just the expression of everything that happens in the business. And so, you know, if, if you're going to successfully manage a fast-growth company, you have to be involved in all of the operations all the way up the chain. To make sure that ultimately when the numbers come out, that they're what you expected them to be. And so, you know, I, one of the things I, I talk about is this idea when you work in finance in a, in a high growth company, you know, there are two types of finance teams. There's those that report the news and there are those teams that help make it. And, you know, I've always been of the mindset you got to make the news and really drive the company forward. And so, you know, we built a finance organization that's in, engaged in every facet of the company and that allows us to help not just manage the financials, but to really help drive growth in partnership with the business and to make decisions as to, you know, what are the right levers that we can pull to keep growth at the levels that we want to see?
0: And I'm just curious, how how is it that you build a team to do that, to drive the news rather than just report it? What goes into yeah, that?
1: That's a great question. You know, I, I, think, I think there's a few things. One, I'd say I've been very fortunate to have, exceptional leaders that I've worked with in other companies that have joined me at SalesLoft. So people that kind of know the, the type of team that I want to build and, and, and are very aligned to that vision. So one is building out an incredible leadership team that wants to execute on that vision. And then two, you know, it's, it's something where, you know, how you, how you interview people, how you identify candidates, it starts with the hiring process. And then also, too, it's about building those cross-functional partnerships with the business so that they view you as a partner and not just as someone who can answer questions whenever they need it. And so I viewed it as one of the most important things I did in my first six months on the job was establish really strong cross-functional partnerships with all of my fellow executives, You know, recognizing, hey, look, I'm here to make you successful. I want you to, you know, to lean on my team for that. And by building that foundation, they could get comfortable that, hey, look, finance isn't here to, to police me or to tell me no, but to figure out a way to help me you know, be successful and, and get to a yes.
0: Yeah, I think that's great. I think so important, especially these days, to, to knock down the silos that have been in place you know, forever and really work cross-functionally to achieve the goals of the company.
1: Yeah, and, and you know it's interesting. You, uh, back to your comment about high growth as well. I think you know one of the biggest mistakes companies can make as they're growing really fast is looking across all of the different functions. You know, if you're if you're not careful and you overinvest in one area and underinvest in others, because you're growing really fast, you know those cracks form a lot faster. And so, you know, having your pulse on all of the different functions, all the all the key performance indicators that they're looking at. Customer health, customer success, all of those things are so important because, you know, if you don't watch it, you might, you know, what what people say in technology, look, it, it's one thing to sell the software. It's another thing to, to make the customer successful, which is what we're all about doing.
0: And as a company's growing really fast, how do you put processes, processes into place, but still keep like an entrepreneurial spirit alive?
1: That's a great question. And I think it's, it's probably one of the biggest challenges for any incoming CFO of a high growth business. What I would say is there's like the crawl, walk, run mentality. So there are certain things that you have to put in place. You have to close your financials. You have to, you know, make sure you can, you know, control who can pay people and and things like that. And you have to have tight controls around payroll, but there's certain things in the business that there's a a continuum where there's not a right or wrong answer as to how much control you put in place. And so what we've done at Sales Loft is, you know, certainly in the areas that needed it immediately, you know, we we put in processes, we invested in new technology. But then in, in other areas, we kind of like implemented things over time, recognizing that you know you have to meet the organization where it is and help it to grow. An example is, I think about our selling motion. And it used to be where you were small enough that every salesperson could come to me and ask me for approval on a deal or you know get my thoughts on how to structure it. Well, over time we've built a deal desk function that's now, you know, staffed to help them really grow and scale and be successful with customers. But we weren't going to do that when we were a small company, just, you know, kind of scrappy growing fast. But as you scale, you have to look for those different teams, those different processes and those different systems that you have to invest in to help the company continue to make improvements in those areas. And, and I know you know, one of the things that I've always said about SalesLoft is we want to run like a public company, even when we're not public. Yeah. You know, and we've been doing that for a few years now. And really, it's all about investing in those systems and then making constant improvements as we go.
0: And earlier this year, you announced a massive growth investment from Vista Equity Partners. So can you tell us a little bit about what went into making this happen?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, look, what's incredible about Vista as a partner is Vista, I mean, they've been, they only invest in software companies, and they are a top-tier uh, private equity firm with tons, with years of experience working with software companies. So we viewed them as a great partner, you know, even before, potential partner for us even before the deal ever happened. Back in, I want to say the fall of last year, we looked and we had north of 20 comp- Vista portfolio companies that were sales loft customers. And really, you know, what part of that comment about running like a public company before you're public is, you know, that allows you to be ready for anything. And so, you know, with a, with a deal of that scale, there's an cr- incredible amount of due diligence, an incredible amount of analysis, document generation that, that needs to exist. And we had all those pillars in place because we were running like a public company before the deal ever happened. And so I think that put us in the best possible position to be successful and, and, and also to be successful with a, an incredibly sophisticated investor in, in Vista. And what's been great about Vista is you know, they've been an incredible partner post-deal on helping us to continue to fulfill that mission of growing really fast, taking care of our customers. And we, you know, we realized that they were going to be the right partner for us, and they've proven to be that ever since the deal.
0: And you've actually said that one of your favorite parts of the job is spending time externally with investors. So can you talk to us about your advice for financial professionals when it comes to meeting and engaging an investor?
1: Yeah, look, I think that there's a couple pieces to it that I'd say, you know, I guess I've, I I look as part of this, Megan, I, I went back and looked, I think I've raised probably about $300 million of, of venture capital long before we did the Vista deal. And you know, some of the things that I found that have, have made have made me successful there is one is, you know, there's this, there's this idea of lines, not dots. And what I mean by that is you should be establishing relationships with investors long before you ever actually are in the process of wanting to raise capital or that or you need something from them. And and, and if you do that, if you establish that, and what I mean by lines is you meet with them periodically. And you give them insights on what's going on with the company. Hey, I said I was going to. I said the company would do this. We actually achieved that and more. And then when you get time where you actually do need them, where you where you're thinking about raising capital, you have this incredible relationship and connection, where you know where it's not just starting from a place of a, an actual transaction. And so that's one I would say for sure is investing in having relationships with investors, even when you're not raising money. And I think that's the mistake a lot of. Companies make and especially a lot of finance leaders that haven't done it before is building those relationships because I'll, if I go back and look at some of the the fundraises that we've done, if these are investors that you know my CEO or myself we may have met a few years earlier, but that connection together helped us to ultimately you know get the positive outcome and get the right investors on board when we were doing it. The other thing I would say that is is good advice as you think about investor interaction is. The running joke I always have is is working with investors is probably the most salesy thing you get to do as a finance leader, and and it's about you know learning how to tell the story of your company and not just through the lens of numbers, but through the lens of the customers, through the lens of your operating metrics, and if you can connect those then back to the numbers, it's gonna be, it's gonna tell a really powerful story. And what I'm what I love is. You know, even after the Vista transaction, we've continued to have those interactions with investors at conferences and you always learn something new too. Because the other thing I'd say, if I, if I, if I go back to one more piece of advice is, you know, one of the great things about interacting with investors is, you know, they tend to be really smart and they ask you really good questions. And so if you're open to learning and listening, you can learn a lot from the questions investors are asking you too. And that helps to make you a better leader. It also helps you to learn how to better tell your story as well. That's
0: really great advice. I like the advice about learning to tell your company's story. I think it's really important these days for CFOs to be a storyteller or the finance department to be a storyteller with more than just numbers.
1: You're totally spot on. I mean, you you think about, and, and then not just to connect it to the company, but also to connect it to the macro environment. I mean, look, companies nowadays are dealing with an unprecedented amount of external factors, right? Whether that be inflation, whether that be, you know, Global, a little bit of global unrest, and you know, finance's ability to to look around corners and you know, kind of keep the business going during those times is is really kind of what the function is is supposed to do, and that ties back into being able to tell the story in kind of all different seasons of 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 the company as well.
0: And Salesloft has an opportunity to potentially be public one day. You already mentioned acting like a public company before you're public, but what else can be done to to drive a company in this direction?
1: You know, I think when you think about being a public company, it it comes down to a couple of things. One is you have to focus on your customers and you have to grow your company in in a healthy way to even have an option to be a public company. And that's something that we've been focused on at SalesLoft for many years now. You have to be willing to invest in the people, the processes, and the technology to give you the visibility that you need to, to meet some of the, I think, the demands of being a public company. And then I think for SalesLoft, you know, the, the, the beauty of what we have is, you know, look, I can't tell you today whether we're going to be a public company one day or not. I don't know the answer to that. What I do know is, is that my job And the job of my finance and corporate services organization is to make sure that the company is ready for that if it does become an option one day. And in the meantime, you know, we're going to continue to be a partner in the business to drive growth, to drive customer success, to drive employee engagement, you know, kind of all of the kind of foundational things that drive a healthy company that can be public one day.
0: And you mentioned investing in technologies, but are there any specific technologies you're looking at or thinking about making investments in, in let's say the next two to three years,
1: what's your focus there? Yeah, I'd say, you know, for us as a company, we've been, and it's been great, such an incredible partnership across the executive team. I think we've made a lot of the, the infrastructure investments that we needed. So like, as an example, as a finance leader, the first thing you may often have to, to change is your, your accounting or what's called an ERP system. So Early on in my days at SalesLoft, we migrated from QuickBooks to NetSuite. NetSuite is a, is a tool that allows us to scale to being a billion-dollar revenue company and north of that. At some point, you have to automate your commission. If you have if you're a lot of sellers, you have to automate your commissions payments. A lot of companies do that in spreadsheets. And we put a tool in place a few years ago to automate that process. You, know, you have to have a tool in place to drive... Planning and scenario analysis, and there are a few different tools out there for that. We 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 happen to use Adaptive Insights at off today, but there are incredible tools out there like AnaPlan. I mentioned Adaptive, you know. And so for us, I mean, we've put a lot of the systems in place. You know, really, it's just about optimization now. It's about what are the things that need to work better together, because a lot of companies have a tendency to implement a system. And then you have to work with it for a little while to figure out how to make it you know, optimized and integrated the right way. And so we are investing heavily there to make sure that the, the flow of information, the flow of, of data is very clean and through all of our systems, which then gives us the ability to look at the business in a lot of different ways.
0: And as you look at SalesLoft and then specifically your team and function, but what, what are the biggest challenges facing you guys today? both the company and and your department.
1: Yeah, I mean I think, you know, from a company perspective, I think there just becomes an element of as you scale a business, it's just it's not easy, you know, sales off growing north of 50% today, it's it it is entirely challenging to grow a company at 50% at scale. Where do you find the people? Consistently. <laughs> right, exactly. That's that's right. You got to find the people and then, you know, the thing is you think about it If you're doubling the company every 18 months to two years, you're essentially building a new company again, which means you might break many of the things that you just put in place. And so part of what we've spent a lot of time on, and back to a challenge for my own team, is let's think about the process, not for a sales office, we're about roughly 900 employees today. Let's not put in the process for a 1,000-person company. Let's make sure we have a process in place that can support 10,000 people. Let's not just put in a process to support a couple hundred million in revenue. We got to support a few billion in revenue. And, and the idea there is you don't want to have to be redoing everything every 18 months because that gets to be incredibly taxing on the organization. So certainly looking around corners and, and thinking about ways to keep scaling the company is a big challenge for my team. You know, I think another challenge for my team is, you know, the macroeconomic, you know, there are. There are not a lot of people who have operated in a high inflation environment with with some potential instability across the globe. And thinking about the ways that could impact your business and and having your pulse on the scenarios and the leading indicators, so not just the, the financial metrics at the end, but all the indicators that are upstream that you can see earlier to make sure that you put the business in the best possible position no matter what happens. I view that as a responsibility and a big challenge for my team. And then look, I think as any team scales, it's continuing to identify talent. Megan, you said, where do you find the people? But, you know, inevitably in in finance and, and G&A type organizations, you are not going to grow your headcount as fast as the company grows. You just simply can't do it. And so you have to think, you know, the, the ability to hire employees is a privilege. And so you have to be really intentional about getting the right people in the seat and then investing in them, growing their career, learning, having opportunities. Because if you make a good hire, I mean, you know, a good employee can be worth five employees if you, if you treat them the right way and grow them. But you got to get that right identifying talent on the front end for sure.
0: Any tips on how to do that? <laughs> Identify the right uh, talents and... Uh and then yeah yeah
1: attract I, them I, I, think, I think there's a couple things i mean i think one is you know at at a company level you have to invest in employee health and engagement especially as you think about in a remote environment and so i think one of the things i've loved about salesloft our ceo has a saying you know salesloft is a place to do more to be more to become more and you know we invest in training programs whether they're technical, like in finance, but then also, you know, leadership across the company. So you got to invest in those type of programs to make it a place that people want to work. You have to have really strong core values. And I know people, not just the core values that sit on a wall, but the core values where your employees actually want to quote them and live by them. And then, you know, look, I think, you know, back to my comment about investors, I think this concept of lines, not dots applies to recruiting as well. You know, the longer you work, and I know I'll date myself. I've been, I've, you know, been out of the, been in the workforce north of 20 years. You know, there are people that I've interacted with across my entire career that I'm still in touch with today. And some of those people work with me still, but certainly other folks that are in other companies, we all look out for each other and help each other to identify talent. And so maintaining those relationships becomes really important.
0: Yeah, that, that point definitely highlights the value of relationships.
1: Yeah. And then, you know, you, I think you'd asked me early on in this too. It's, you got to have a really strong point of view about what you want your, how do you want your team to operate? You know, you said to me, how do I, how do I find people that want to make the news, not just report it. And I think you tailor your interview process and example questions and things to put people in situations that you know they might encounter working in your team. And those Situational questions then kind of give you a lens into how are they going to act in a certain situation, and I think that helps as well.
0: That's great advice. And last question, but what advice do you have for CFOs who are looking to drive strategic value within their organizations?
1: Yeah, I'd say a couple things. I think I think the first thing is that finance should be the hub at the center of every business decision, and so you have to build those cross-functional relationships across. And you, and you got to build that trust with your fellow leaders and, and show them that you're really there to make them successful. That doesn't mean you say yes to everything because you can't, but that you, they know you're there to make them successful and help them to navigate whatever situation. So I think that's one of the relationships and that foundational trust with all the different functions. You know, the, the other thing that I would say is, you know, having a really strong pulse on how your operational metrics connect to the financials. You know, one of the examples and one of the first things I did at SalesLoft was, you know, we built a multi-year model that connected kind of the day-to-day operating metrics of the company with, with ultimately the the financials. So the, the income statement, the balance sheet and cash flow so that I could have a conversation with our chief revenue officer, our chief marketing officer about a metric that's important to them that I knew I could have a connection back to what does that mean in terms of the financials of the business. And I think that helped us to then say, hey, look, I need you to drive your metrics in this direction so that we get the financial outcomes that we want. And so it's really having that strong connection there as well. And then I think the last thing I'd say is the type of finance organization that you should run is, is one that says, I always say it's like the, you have leaders in place or people based that say, They don't just say no all the time. You just can't do that. And I think, you know, in some organizations, I'm not saying it's global, but in some organizations, I think finance has a reputation for being the no police.
0: Yeah.
1: And you can't do that. I think. (laughs) (laughs) I heard that a a little while ago. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But what I coached my team on is, is that you're going to often be asked questions that you know you can't say yes to. But what you can do is you could say no, but... Here are some things you can do, so you give them an opportunity to have another direction they can take, or they might have a something that the business might have something they want to do where you feel like you can get behind it, but you need to make some some tweaks, and you say, "Yes, and I need you to do these other things, so there's kind of no but or yes and, but you know don't don't be the type of finance leader or organization where you don't give the business alternatives when they come to you with stuff because. And it starts to stifle creativity, especially, you know, to your question about high growth. In high growth companies, there is a balance of art and science. You're only going to have so much data to make every decision. And so you're going to have to take some risks. And ultimately, your job as the the finance leader and CFO is, you know, how do you take calculated risks and have your your pulse on the business so you can make adjustments as you need to? And and I think that that becomes really important as you're scaling really fast.
0: Chad, that's great advice. And I'd just like to say thank you so much for being my guest today.
1: Oh, Megan, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for the great questions. And I, I really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, I really enjoyed speaking with you too and hearing about your experiences and all of the resulting insights. And of course, I wish you the best and Salesforce the best. And to all of our listeners, please tune in next week. And until then, take care.